Will you please make your way with me in your Bibles this morning once again to Luke's The Acts of the Apostles, where we are going to be looking together at the first nine verses of chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. And you can find that passage either on page 1079 in your pew Bibles or on page 48 in your Acts journals. Last week, as we witnessed the conversion of an Ethiopian eunuch under the gospel guidance of Philip at the end of the 8th chapter, I pointed out to you that though many of the circumstances here in Acts might seem quite incredible to us, we simply cannot afford to miss the fact that much of what we see here, for example, even in Philip, truly is part of what I would call the normal Christian life. The normal Christian life. Now, that's not to say that all the situations here are normal. There really is quite a bit of the miraculous here. But certainly we would say that as the kingdom of God marches forward, as it progresses from Jerusalem into Judea, into Samaria, even into the ends of the earth. Indeed, there are things here that ought to be present in the lives of ordinary Christians like you and like me. We looked at just a few of them that I think were so evident in Philip last week. First, we looked at the fact that Philip possessed within himself a deep and abiding love for all people. All people who have been made in the image of Almighty God. And of course, it's a statement that brings about an immediate response or an immediate question in our minds. Well then, who has been made in the image of God? Is it those who are like-minded with Philip? Those who have Philip's best interest in mind? Is it those who openly and actively love Philip and support his work as an evangelist? Of course, the answer is no. It's everyone. That's the category for those who might find themselves on the receiving end of Philip's love. Human beings. Sons and daughters of Adam. Image bearers. And beloved, I reminded you of the many and varied people who had received of Philip's love so far in the book book of Acts. For example, we know that Philip loved the widows of the church. And he counted it as a real joy to care for them. To see to it that their needs were taken care of. Philip obviously loved the church. And he also loved her enemies. He loved the Samaritans. He loved the broken and the weak and the fearful. He loved the demon-possessed. He loved the sick and the infirm. He loved the lame and he wants like nothing else to see them rise up and walk. He loved a sorcerer who desperately needed to see Jesus Christ through the power of the Spirit and the proclamation of the gospel. Philip loved all people. And the proof was in the manner in which he actively loved them. 
he freely preached the gospel to all of them. He pointed them to life in union with Jesus Christ by faith. By the grace of God, Philip preached the gospel in power. And he rejoiced with those who saw Jesus and found life in him. Philip loves King Jesus and he wants for everyone to see him. To find, even amid so much death, precious hope and life in him. Philip hates no one in the book of Acts. He even loves another stranger like this Ethiopian eunuch. It reminds us that this frame of mind does not only belong to Philip, does it? It's the mind of all of those who are in Christ Jesus. We should never think of ourselves as being better than anyone else. We should long to show the world Jesus Christ. Philip would take the balm of the gospel to any and all who were desperate to hear it. My challenge to you last week was, would we? What are we willing to let stand in the way of this kind of love? This mind to love all who were made in the image of God enough to get them to Jesus. I apologize. This mind was in Philip. And it's in you and I. And beloved, it's part of the normal Christian life. Do we love Jesus and his gospel like this? Do we love everyone made in the image of God? Secondly, we saw that Philip was being guided by the Holy Spirit. We have here in this text proof that God truly does love the world. Here is this confused outsider, this stranger wrestling with the word of God, looking for answers. And truly, he was an outsider by all, by all accounts. I'm not going to rehash it all again this morning, but this man's status as a eunuch kept him from being able to even worship in the temple with the assembly of God's people. And yet here he is, having gone to Jerusalem to worship outside of the temple, even that which he fully did not fully understand. And God will not let him go. We should praise God for that. God pursues those whom he loves. God has Philip's ear and he calls his servant first by one of his messengers, an angel. He, tell, he told Philip to drop what he was doing in Samaria and to head south on the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. And he says it's a desert. And Philip asks no questions. He offers no protest. He does not so much as question the angel regarding all of the progress that he was making with the Samaritans. No, Philip understands that it's not about Philip. And it's not about Philip's works or his efforts. It's about God building his kingdom through Philip, his servant. 
And so Philip, having the Holy Spirit, arises, he drops what he's doing, and he gets to the road. He trusts God. God in his sovereignty and in his wonderful providence moves heaven and earth to gather his sheep. And again, beloved, I ask you, do you believe that this morning? Philip certainly did. And he sees the eunuch and he hears the words of the Holy Spirit telling him to go and overtake this man in his chariot. And we're told that Philip had to run to catch up with the chariot. And the man was sitting in the chariot reading aloud from Isaiah 53. And Philip runs up next to him and he says, Brother, do you understand what you're reading? The man says, How can I unless I'm taught? And Philip, obeying the Spirit of God, climbs up into the chariot with the man, and the Word of God says, and Philip opened his mouth. And beginning at this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Which led to our third and final point regarding the normal Christian life in Philip. Philip knew and loved the gospel of Jesus Christ. It didn't matter where in the prophets this man could have been, Philip would have been ready, willing, and able to preach Jesus to this man from Scripture. It was why he was alive and being used by God. Philip left Samaria because Philip was not at all concerned about being the guy in Samaria. He was a man that knew his calling as a Christian and as a minister that he was to be used by God to spread the hope of Jesus Christ and the gospel to the world. And he did it in this text with this eunuch. He told him from Isaiah 53 all about the lamb who went willingly to his death to atone for the sins of his people. He showed him Jesus in the law and the prophets. He showed him that Jesus truly was, in fact, the Messiah, the Lamb of God, Come to take away the sin of the world. And another one of God's children ran to the everlasting arms of Jesus and rejoiced in the gospel. He received the sign of of the covenant and baptism and he left that place rejoicing. And beloved, the gospel marched on. The normal Christian life. Well, in the text that is before us this morning, God expands the beauty of his love for us in the gospel even further. If you've ever questioned whether or not God really pursues you because of his great love for you, then I hope that you will give your full attention to God's word this morning. If you think that maybe this Ethiopian eunuch first made a move towards God and only then did God respond in kind, then I am afraid that this text that is before us today simply will not allow for you to continue in that line of reasoning. This morning, we are going to look even deeper into the deep and abiding love that Almighty God has for all of those whom He has claimed as His own. So I'd like you to follow along with me in your Bibles as I read from the holy, inerrant, and infallible Word of God this morning, Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. Hear now the word of our Lord. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, 
went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? The Lord said to him, Arise, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the, man who journeyed, the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we're grateful for the opportunity that we have to come before your word this morning. We pray that you would bless this time together, Father. I ask that you would remove all those things that distract us in this life, clear our hearts and minds that we might give our undivided attention to your word and hearing your word through the power of your spirit that we might be transformed more and more to live for your glory and your glory alone. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we move on now from Philip the Evangelist to quite another movement in the progression of the kingdom. Chapter 8 ended with the Ethiopian eunuch rejoicing as he made his way back to his own land, undoubtedly eager to share the transforming good news of the gospel with his fellow countrymen. And Philip, we are told, ended up in Azotus. And Luke tells us that passing through there, he preached Jesus Christ from there all the way to Caesarea, preaching and teaching about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And now Luke takes us back from there once again to Jerusalem. And he tells us there that the enemies of the gospel were still seeking to do the church of Jesus Christ much harm. And one rose above all of them. And so we encounter again Saul of Tarsus. Luke tells us that he is there in Jerusalem and that he's still breathing threats and murder against all the disciples of the Lord. And apparently, he was not content to leave his reign of terror against Christians and the church just in Jerusalem. He was missional in his mindset. He wanted his hate to go further. And he was asking the high priest for letters from him to the synagogues, speaking against any and all followers of what he called the way, the Christian church so that he could then go to Damascus and bring back any whom he found following Jesus Christ in chains. Men or women, 
to bring them back so he could throw them into prison as he had done with so many in and around Jerusalem. And so I want to be clear here from the outset. It's really not up for debate. Saul of Tarsus hated the Christian church. Mark that in your minds. However, even with the severe hatred that Saul had for what he referred to as the way, the Christian church, even Saul could not stand for a moment in that hatred when confronted by the majesty of King Jesus. This morning, it's my hope to look specifically at three things that we see here in this encounter between a sworn enemy of the kingdom of God and its all-glorious, all-majestic king. Three things that impact this interaction between Saul and Jesus Christ that are clearly manifested for us in this text. And they are the incomprehensible love of God in the gospel, humility in the presence of holiness, and the complete dependence of all things that belong to God in Jesus Christ. First, it is becoming a very familiar thing here in the book of Acts, but we have to see the incomprehensible love of Almighty God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can't afford to miss it. I've already warned you this morning that if you somehow were able to chase away the hope of God's love for you or his love for the Ethiopian eunuch, by telling yourself that God only loved him because he was, in fact, seeking God, he was reading the scripture, then please be prepared to be left without excuse this morning. You will not be able to just chase this movement by God, driven by his love, away from this text. Consider this man, Saul. He has already been a part of considerable damage to the young church of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. You will remember that there were those who thought that Saul of Tarsus perhaps stirred up the whole trial of Stephen. Whether or not that's the truth, we don't know for sure from the scripture. But he certainly was there. And he was the one who's pointed out by Luke as the guy holding the cloaks of those brazen enough to carry out his execution. Immediately following the death of Stephen, this is Saul of Tarsus, the same man who went on to ramp up his persecution of all the Christians in Jerusalem. Going from home to home, throwing both men and women in jail for daring to follow Jesus Christ. He was a Pharisee. Luke told us he wreaked havoc in the church of Jesus Christ in and around Jerusalem. And as a Pharisee, even by Pharisaical standards, he stood above most. He was trained under Gamaliel in Jerusalem. He exceeded most in terms of external righteousness and excellence as measured by other pious men, so-called pious men. And he was so incensed over this sect coming out of Judaism that he could not let things rest just in Jerusalem. He had undoubtedly heard of what had transpired in Samaria and in Judea and in all those regions where his 
persecution had caused so many Christians to flee. So Saul went to the high priest seeking permission and authority to take his mission of destroying the Christian faith further than just Jerusalem. He asked to go to Damascus. I want you to understand, if you you look at your your Bible map, you'll be shocked. Damascus, not close to Jerusalem, 135 miles away, so that he could bring back more Christians in chains and throw them into prison. And receiving proper authority from the high priest, Saul begins to make his way towards Damascus with threats and murder and rage occupying his stony heart and his blinded mind. Now, why would I need to remind us of all of that? Well, beloved, because I want us to fully understand, at least to the depth that we are able, the unfathomable love of Almighty God that is manifested in this encounter that is about to change the the trajectory of this man's life. And countless others because of it. Have you ever really considered it? First, I would point out, to the, point out to you the obvious. Saul of Tarsus is not seeking peace with God or salvation in Jesus Christ at all here. Saul is an educated man. Not just in the way of the world, in the way of Scripture. He is a Pharisee. He knows and he is very familiar with the content of Moses and the law and the prophets. He even thinks rather foolishly that he himself keeps the holy law of God. He is not in any way considering his knowledge of God to be somewhat deficient. Lacking anything at all. He feels absolutely justified in his rigorous pursuit of these Christ followers and his mission to put an end to their blasphemy against the God who is. That is his frame of mind. That is the content of his heart as he makes his way down the Damascus road. He hates Jesus Christ and he hates his church. And God says that Saul belongs to him. Do you understand? God goes after Saul's heart. And not in the way that we in our own sinful, vengeful attitudes probably would have. We would love to see God just sort of snuff this guy out. He's a real problem for the kingdom. The ground could just open up and swallow Saul whole and we would cheer. The fire could shoot out and consume Saul like it did Nadab and Abihu and we would thank God for dealing with this persecutor of the church. He could simply fall down dead like Ananias and Sapphira and we would say, well done Lord. But God's ways are not man's ways. God loves Saul. This hater of the Christian church. 
This persecutor of the church, God loves him and he will not let him go into Damascus to carry out even more persecution upon his people. He loves him enough to end it all together. He will send him to Damascus, but for another mission entirely. And beloved, I really want us to see and to even feel the weight of the love of God for his people here. We can't afford to miss it. If you are discouraged in the Christian life this morning, please pay attention to what's going on here with Saul. God goes out and he gathers his sheep. God does it. He doesn't send Philip He doesn't send any other apostle for this task. There is no burning bush. This is not a still small voice. But the Lord Jesus Christ, King Jesus in majesty, confronts this man because of his deep abiding love for him. Luke tells us as he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. The glory of the resurrected, ascended Lord surrounds Saul and the world stops. His threats that only moments before he had been breathing against Jesus and all of his followers stops. His murderous rage against the people of God stops. Everything around him fades as he is enveloped by a light that somehow shines brighter than the sun at noon in the Middle East. Everything stops. Everything goes away. His purpose in existing as he knows it stops. His kingdom of self-righteous indignation stops. His mission of destroying the church of Jesus Christ stops. As the Lord of glory, King Jesus, the Messiah that he should have been looking for, lovingly confronts the folly of this man who dared to think that he could thwart the advancement of this kingdom and its king. You understand, God loves Saul, and Saul is not very lovable. He reaches down, and he shows him who he is, and Saul is breathing threats and murder no more. Beloved, do you see the love of God here in the conversion of this sworn enemy of his kingdom. Because we need to. Let me ask you something this morning. Which sins are they that you think ought to keep others or perhaps even think ought to keep you yourself from the loving embrace of Jesus Christ? What are they? Do you see without any shred of a doubt who the pursuer is here? 
and who's being pursued. God loves Saul enough to show him just a glimpse of his glory. And Saul's rage and his supposed strength disappear. They're gone. And it brings me to the second point this morning. What results as the radiant glory of King Jesus completely envelops the man Saul? Humility. Humility like this man has never known it. Humility in the face of holiness. Saul sees himself for what he truly is, and you have to see that here. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus. Suddenly a light shone around him from heaven, and he fell to the ground. And he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? His grumbling ends immediately. He hits the ground as the light is so brilliant that he cannot even bear to look into it. Beloved, this is what happens when sinful humanity encounters the holiness of Almighty God. It's no longer upheld or propped up by sin. Do you understand? Pride flees like a thief. Threats turn into whimpers. Plans fall by the wayside. Haughty eyes are shut. We see it throughout Scripture. Isaiah coming apart at the seams when he just glimpses the train of God's robe in the temple. Uzzah. Snuffed out in an instant for daring to reach out his filthy, sin-stained hand to study, to steady the ark of God where God said his presence was. Nadab and Abihu playing with strange fire. Jesus speaking the words, I am he, and the soldiers around him being forced back from even the words coming from his mouth. The reaction of sinful humanity to the holiness of God is always the same. Humanity falls down. It gives up. The fight ends. In Christ, the victor reigns. And humility is at God's service. Look at what Saul's response is here. He says, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And Luke says, so he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Does that sound like Saul of Tarsus? No, Saul of Tarsus died that day. The Lord said to him, arise, go into the city, and I will tell you what you are to do. Saul goes in an instant from arrogant threats and murderous rage to obedient humility in the presence of King Jesus. He'll no longer chase the kingdom, but lead it towards glory by the grace of God. He calls him Lord. Lord, what do you want me to do? His place with the Pharisees no longer matters. In an instant. A lifetime of study, a lifetime of reputation, a lifetime of accomplishment means nothing. 
His reputation as the scourge of the Christian church dies here on the dusty road with Saul. He's no longer convinced that no one serves Almighty God quite like he serves. He is a worm. Beloved, it should be sobering for us. Can you imagine the conviction at this moment in this man's life? He's been wrong about so much. He had ruined many lives in his error. He had caused suffering for humble families as men and women were carted off from their homes and thrown into prison to rot away. Even here, he was on his way to leave his mark of terror upon anyone daring to look to Jesus in Damascus. And Jesus confronts him and he's never the same by the grace of God. Humility in the face of holiness. Beloved, I want to ask you something this morning. I want you to ask yourself if this is true of you. Understand, I am not asking you to manufacture some Damascus Road experience in your life. It's not what I'm talking about. I'm asking you if you have been confronted in your sin by the holiness of Almighty God in His Word. If you don't hate your sin, you haven't. Have you been confronted by the perfection, the brilliant, perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you, have you been humbled by your sin in light of it? I want to tell you there's nothing more awful to me than watching Christians get all swelled up with pride. What pride could there be left if you have witnessed or glimpsed even a touch of your sin in light of the holiness of God and the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Are you really humble enough this morning because of the gospel of Jesus Christ to admit that your works really are as filthy rags before the real thing? Are you content to be like the emperor in his new clothes? Have you bought into the lie, the dupes of Satan, that you are dressed in elegant robes that have no rival? That you are the envy of people everywhere when in fact you stand completely unaware that you're naked before the world. The glory of Jesus Christ and his majestic righteousness changed Saul in an instant. And this guy who took up his cause and ran with it, this man who did more than most to attempt to snuff out the light of Jesus Christ and his gospel also has done more since this very moment to build it up and to point to the glory of the exalted Christ until his last breath escaped him. He has no equal. More than one quarter of your New Testament would be communicated by God to his people through the trembling quill of this very man. He would confess Christ before kings and leaders. 
He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, a supposed lover of the law of God, and he would take the precious good news of Jesus Christ and his salvation to the Gentiles. Can you imagine? He who carted off God's people to prison through the proclamation of the gospel would free them from the bondage of sin and usher them towards home and eternity. Saul saw in an instant that Jesus Christ was everything he ever needed. That he truly paid it all. He came and lived perfectly for Saul. He went to the cross and agonized for Saul. He rose again on the third day for Saul. He ascended and reigns at the right hand to sanctify Saul of Tarsus. And beloved, the beautiful thing here is what is true of Saul is true of you in Jesus Christ by faith. He paid it all for the likes of you. Where is there room for pride in that? Of course there is none. It leads me to the final point that I think we need to see here. What does Saul do now? Saul's a changed man. Saul, by being blinded, is seeing for the very first time in his life. What does he do? He lives from this very moment in time in utter dependence upon God. Do you see that? He gets up from the ground. And this wolf, devouring the sheep of Jesus Christ, is led by the hand by this group of stunned men who were with him into Damascus. He can't even make his own way in the city to do what he came to do. And Jesus really gives him no instruction other than to get up out of the dirt, head into the city, and you will be told what to do. What can Saul do but trust King Jesus who opened his spiritual eyes on that day? Blind and terrified, he's left absolutely, completely to the mercy of God. We're told here by Luke that for three days Paul was blind, that he neither ate food nor took any drink during that time. He trusted Jesus Christ. And he waited. From this moment on, He was aware that his days, his hours, his minutes were never his own. He belonged to Jesus. His wicked crusade had ended. And a new crusade to get people to Jesus was about to begin. So much of the rest of the book of Acts is about exactly that thing. The life and ministry of Saul the terrorist who became Paul the Apostle. Beloved, do you see the love of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ this morning? How could we ever hold it back from others? How could we ever hold out on it ourselves? 
How could we ever deem one unworthy of the precious life-giving balm of the gospel? How could we choose to withhold life amid so much death? How could we ever envision our own sin just a little too big for King Jesus? It's ridiculous. As ridiculous as Saul stomping towards Damascus to end this kingdom once and for all. Again, I constantly go back to the Psalms. Why do the heathen nations rage? What a joke. Do they know what it is to stand against this God? Saul is destroyed in an instant by the presence of Christ's glory. And it's sobering. And it should be. Because we can't fail to make the jump. What are we to do? We're no different. Born the enemies of God, the natural enemies of God, fallen in our father, in our father Adam before we ever did a thing. But make no mistake, we've done plenty. Willingly transgressing the holy law of God. We are lawbreakers. We are haters of God. We are haters of his law. And what does God do? He says, run to Jesus and find life. Run to Jesus. Give up your puny kingdom of one. And bask in the vast blue sky kingdom of God. Give up making your life all about you. Get over yourself and live in Christ for Christ and his glory. Your salvation is so much more than just your own little corner of Christianity. God saves his people not because they have something to offer, but to use what he will to build his kingdom for his glory. He will do it in spite of you. Be humbled by the sin that God in his grace has removed from you as far as the east is from the west. Be humbled by the gospel that Jesus loved you enough to come and live and suffer and die for your redemption. Live for Jesus Christ. Live to praise his name. Live to get others before him. Live to live lives that are sacrifices of praise. You understand what I'm saying this morning? Live the normal Christian life. This is it. You don't need a conference to know it. You need the word of God. You need the ordinary means of grace. You need the gospel and you need to run to Jesus. And you do it for the glory of God. And you rejoice in the treasure that is yours in the glorious gospel. Amen.